Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today, the Gersh Agency's Roy Ashton discusses continued uncertainty in the US marketplace after last year's Hollywood strikes and the impact of further consolidation. Lion Forge Entertainment's Stephanie Sperber on how the diversity-focused studio is navigating the tumult and Black Box Multimedia's Giuliano Papadia on adapting to streamer cutbacks. The Gersh Agency is one of Hollywood's leading agencies, representing talent across film, TV, theatre, literature and more for over seven decades. The Los Angeles-based company last year sold a 45% stake to New York-based private equity firm Crestview Partners, and last month acquired the digital and alternative departments of rival A3 Artists Agency. Gersh partner Roy Ashton spoke to Jordan Pinto about these developments and about continued uncertainty in the US marketplace after last year's strikes, the decline in development as buyers become more selective, plus the growth of influencers and non-English language content. Roy, um, thinking about some of the the crossover and the cross-pollination that we're seeing or that we have seen between um, the Latin American and U.S. Hispanic markets and Hollywood. I think there's a lot of companies that are, you know, certainly trying to b- build that bridge and expand on some of the great work that's been done already. Um, do you see more opportunities today um, in in that kind of in that kind of goal of, of bridging the gap between Hollywood and the the Hispanic um, content marketplace? Absolutely, um, for lots of reasons. Um, among them being that the U.S. Hispanic audience is about 65 million people that are not being uh, served tremendously well, in in my opinion right now. Uh, they need more programming, and I think also the, the number of people in LATAM that are coming up with great stories that are global stories and that are starting to travel more are finding receptive audiences around the globe. So I think that's another reason that it's happening. Um, there are also a tremendous amount of great stories and talented writers coming out of Latin America, which is exactly what is the first step to being able to export any of the content. So they're finding receptive audiences mostly because they're good stories um, and they're executed well by, by talent that, that knows how to tell great stories. So that's part of the reason it's coming out. The other reason is I think the, the world is getting a little smaller. Uh, the global opportunities are, uh, are they're they're becoming more of the norm in the business because the U.S. is going to buy a little bit less going forward, and I think that gives the other, uh, you know, content providers in the countries, the talent in the countries, to put more of their own content forward. And I also think that the the streaming, uh, the global streamers, they want content, local content, because they have to uh, make sure subscribers uh, keep coming and keep paying for the service. So. At the end of the day, there's a lot more room for local content. And then uh, I think organically, uh, some of those shows travel and it gets people more excited around the globe to see more content from those countries. So we've seen it with uh, Squid Game, obviously, in South Korea. We've seen it with Gamora uh, in, out of Italy, Delhi Crime out of, out of India and other places. Um, so I think that that's part of the, the reasons that people want to see these, these shows. And Zorro, just to as it's premiering and it's doing quite well right now on Amazon and, and LATAM and the US, that's another example of wonderfully produced and acted and, and written shows coming out of LATAM and Spanish audience. And it's actually number four, I believe so far. Uh, it just premiered, but it's number four right now. So I think that's gonna increase the appetite. People, audiences want to know what else 
can they do? What else do the people that did that show, what can they do? What, you know, it came out of Spain, but what other Spanish shows are out there? Money Heist, obviously, would be the, the big one that Netflix did. Um, obviously, I'm not breaking any news, but last year in the US market was, was a pretty tumultuous year. Um, you know, a, a, probably a six month spell without any production. Um, and overall, I think the buyers are commissioning less scripted programming anyway. And um, that will result in there being certainly less US scripted programming in the marketplace in 2024 and probably 2025 as well. Um, do you see, as, as the, the kind of volume of, of US programming um, decreases, do you see a lane or a kind of, you know, a, a place for more Latin American content, more Spanish content to kind of gain more visibility in, in the global marketplace? Absolutely. Uh, we were at peak TV in the US in 2021, 2022, about 600 shows. Uh, depending on who you talk to, the consensus is 400, 450 is where we'll end up. We'll see. Um, the, the big companies are saying on their shareholder calls, they're going to make 20 or 30% less content. That's about the norm that, that they're saying they're going to cut back on. Uh, the broadcasters are also developing less. So there is less. It's still a great business. There's still a lot of opportunity in the U.S., but it's just not quite where we were at peak TV. So now uh, enter, I think, two things. One is the cost of American shows is, is the highest in the world, and it's quite astronomical, and it's not unusual to find a show 8 or 10 million per episode. I think that if the networks can bring the cost down a little bit, but also buy shows that don't cost as much in the co-production market, the, you don't pay as much for an acquisition as you would for an original, I think that is going to help uh, not just the Latin and Spanish uh, shows that are coming into the U.S. looking for a home, but also the rest of the world. And so I think that's, that's one of the, the ways, I think, the big, uh, the big opportunity on the table for, uh, for the LATAM content to find a home in the U.S. People were very curious um, after the strike ended um, what the commissioning or what the buyers were going to be looking for and whether that would kind of change in a post-strike environment. Um, as you said, you know, peak TV, we, you know, we reached the end of peak TV. Um, would the buyers' appetites and their needs change? Um, over the next 12 months, and, and as we kind of start to see how things are shaking out, um, do you expect to see what the buyers are looking for um, evolve or change? Um, or do you think it will be similar to what we saw in the pre-strike uh, moment? I think they're going to be more selective going forward. I think that the, the strike was something that was unfortunate, obviously, for a lot of people in the business, almost everybody in the business. And I think that it gave the, the buyers, the platforms, a chance to regroup, reset, and figure out what they want to do. I think it also opened the door for a conversation about how they want to move forward. And I think that conversation at the buyer level is still evolving. And I think they definitely are buying less, as, as they all are saying. Uh, I also think that they, uh, it's, the strike has delayed what, the, what they know uh, they want to buy this year because there are new shows are just getting into production. Um, some of them went back, the returning shows, but most of the new shows are coming back now, and they don't know how they're working until they get on the air. So, especially at the broadcasters, um, that they, they have to wait till the new shows that they ordered get on the air, see how they're doing, see if that's the direction they wanna go creatively. So there's a little bit of a delay in our, in our market. So I think this year is gonna be a little tougher. I also think that people are making plans to see how they wanna do business going forward all of the buyers at the broadcast level and streaming. Uh, so I think that's delaying things a little bit. But at the end of the day, I think that 
you know, as soon as we get out of this probably six or eight months now uh, where they've seen their new shows, they know what they want to buy, they know how they want to buy, they are bringing down the budgets, they're working on uh, bringing down the budgets, figuring out how that, how that actually is going to work, uh, then I think they'll have, we'll have more information from them, which helps everyone in the market because if we can plan and we, we have direction from them as to what they want to buy, that's going to be better on our side. Talent will know how to, what to bring the broadcasters and the streamers, and that always helps. Um, what, what's the overall mood in, in Hollywood at the start of the year? I think obviously last year was, you know, was, a, was a terrible year, really. Um, I think there was a lot of tension even leading up to the strike. I think there was, you know, it, was, it was tense. Now that I suppose the big blow up has happened and people, people are kind of so desperate to get back to work, um, what, what, is, what is the mood like in Hollywood? Is it, is it a kind of, you know, let's move on kind of situation or are there still some of the fractures that were, you know, caused the strike? Um, are those, do those fractures still, still exist in a big way? So the fractures, unfortunately, I think still are out there. Um, it was a very tense negotiation and I think there's still a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of animosity between the two parties, the, the buyers and the, the talent. Uh, I think that'll be over soon, but I think what's making our market a little more challenging right now, it's everything's moving very slowly and the decisions aren't being made at the, at the buyer level uh, quickly. They're not telling us, you know, as we said, the new shows have to go on the air before they know what they want to buy, but they're also being more selective in buying. And I think they will continue to be more selective. So I think there's, there's less, there's more uncertainty, which is never good. And so the last strike 15 years ago, people got right back to business. Everyone, you know, you know, the hamster wheel, so to speak, turned a lot faster. This time that didn't happen. Uh, things are slow and things are going to, I think, stay slow for at least the first half of this year before the buyers figure out what they want to do and how they want to buy. And I do think that the, the buying market is, is very difficult now. They buy less, they develop less. They prefer to have shows that are more packaged up, which takes a long time to get to the market, takes longer to get to the market. And I think that they're, they're not developing as much as they used to. Um, so that's, that's also challenging. And that's harder on the talent because you used to be able to have a decent year if you were developing in television and you sold two or three scripts a year. Now that's a lot harder to do. There's, there's just much less of, of uh, development out there for people and it's mostly it's mostly networks knowing what they want, um, coming in with a, with a big package, probably including an actor. Uh, a lot of the platforms are telling us that, especially in the streaming side. And that makes it harder to sell a show. And, and so when you do have a show and it succeeds, it's great. And it's maybe better than it's ever been because the budgets are a little higher and you're making great quality television. The bar is, is higher than ever, but it's harder to sort of be in that, you know, sort of second tier where you, you didn't get the show on the air you wrote a great script, you had a great pitch that might not have sold. It's just harder to, to sort of stay in that, in that place now where you're in a development situation year round without getting a show picked up. So that, that's a little more challenging and that makes people a little more nervous. Uh, but most of it comes from the buyers not knowing what they're doing yet, not being clear with the town, uh, all of the talent in the town, telling them what they want and telling them how much they how much they want, how much they're going to buy. And then you see also, uh, you know, Paramount is in a situation now where they've been, an offer has been made and we'll see where that ends up. But at the end of the day, that might be a buyer going away. So they're not making any moves until they know. Hulu was in a similar situation before 
they were going to be sold, not sold. Um, so I think they're they're sort of figuring out their their mandates as well. And that's tougher on the town. That's tougher on the the talent side. From the agency side, does the prospect of more M and A? You mentioned you mentioned Paramount there. They're, they're the one, and an, an official offer has been put in now. Um, when you're thinking about you know the talent that you represent, um, does the prospect of another me- mega merger or mega acquisition is that a big headache for you, or do you come at it from the perspective of realizing that if these companies don't perhaps you know link up, then they might, one of them might go away? Like it's M and A kind of might be a necessity. Um, yeah, with your agency hat on, what's what's the perspective? It's harder. We want more buyers, and if a buyer goes away, it's not great. Um, you've already seen uh, Showtime is in. You know they're still buying, but they're buying less than they ever bought, and they weren't that that big a, a volume buyer. Um, Paramount Plus is is buying very very limited right now. Uh, there are places that I think uh, Hulu, I said, was incredibly challenging right now to sell to them. Uh, if there are less buyers, that's probably going to mean less opportunity to put TV shows on the air. And so we prefer more buyers. We, we, you know, we understand the business side of it, but the more buyers there are out there usually means more opportunity for talent. Um, let, let's, I'll, I'll try and strike an, an optimistic, <laughs> optimistic tone here as well. Um, what are the reasons to be, um, what are the reasons to be optimistic and encouraged about the business in 2024? And I know that we, we know the, the, the challenges we know we know about, um, and there and there are <laughs> there are so many. Um, what are the reasons to be to be optimistic about the business this well, year? It depends where, as an American, and speaking for the American side and our perspective, I would say it's still a great business. Again, there's there was such a an extreme, you know, increase in in production because of the streaming wars. Now that's dialed back a little bit, but there's still, if we, if we end up at 400 or 450 shows, that's still more than most any time in history with the exception of the last several years here. So there's still a lot of business out there. I think the opportunity also for Americans is to go international, to do the co-productions uh, with Canada, Europe, uh, Asia, uh, LATAM. Um, most of that I think is on the table now more so than it has been in the past. I think people want uh, global shows. I think they, the audiences want that. And I think as an American, you know, I, I still think an American showrunner is still as well-trained as anybody to deliver a great TV show. American writers are fantastic. They're among the best in the world. And so there are people that want to hire them. They just might not be in the U.S. Um, we have clients that are, that are doing business all over Europe, all over Asia, uh, even Australia, Africa, Middle East. So there is opportunity everywhere in LATAM as well. Most of the LATAM market uh, tends to use the Americans as a showrunner rather than a creator, but that's still they're still part of the process. They're still making a show, and they're still they're still getting paid, and they're still putting something on the air. So it's still a good business. It's just changing right now, and we just have to all figure out you know how to roll with the punches while while it's changing. Um, Gersh itself is changing as well. Last year, the company announced that it. Um, had sold a 45% uh, stake to Crestview, uh, Crestview Partners. Um, and then earlier, no, the end of 2023, it was announced that they had acquired uh, two departments, uh, literary and an alternative department from um, A3. Um, yeah, can you talk a bit about, I suppose, the, you know, how Gersh is evolving and some of the opportunities for, for you as, a, as an expanding business? So that's another aspect of the business. We're all getting bigger to enable us to service our clients better. That's mostly what those 
moves are about. Um, obviously, we brought in a big digital department, which is a huge part of the entertainment business now. The folks on the influencer side are making a lot of money these days, and they're, there's, there's, they're coming up with IP. Um, you've seen, you know, Moonbug and, and other places that have, you know, studios that have come up from, you know, and TikTok and things on YouTube that are becoming uh, TV shows or content elsewhere. Um, also in the gaming world, that's another place that people are now active and it's, there's a big uptick there. Um, and then we also brought over unscripted folks and that's a, a still a big business uh, globally uh, and in the US as well. So I think it's really about servicing your clients and offering more opportunities to clients. Um, again, in a shifting landscape, maybe there are more people that you know, shift over to unscripted or shift over to digital. Uh, but we want to be able to offer our clients as much, as many things as possible, as many opportunities as possible, and that's the best way to do it. Uh, final one from me, Roy. Um, how do you see the business changing over the next five years? So, tough question, but I think in the near term here, as we get through the strike, as we get through the, uh, you know, the uncertainty, and people sort of figure out what to do, figure out how to, I think, make uh, TV shows for less money, I think that's something that the Americans have to do. Uh, I don't want to speak for the studios, I can't, or the, or the platforms, but American TV shows can often get well above 10 million an episode. And I think if we can figure out how to bring those costs down a little bit, we can do, still do great shows, maybe make more of them. Um, but I think the, the Americans need to figure out how many shows they want to make, how much they want to make them for. And then I think the business will be a lot better off and people, again, will know what, they're, what they're, they can plan, they can know what they want to do, how they want to do it. Um, and more importantly, creatively, I think, as long as they tell us what they're looking for um, in a clear and sort of, you know, pattern that sort of fits with the talent world, which is it takes six months now sometimes to come up with a pitch for a TV show, and you don't always get paid to do that. Um, we need to figure out, I think, those types of processes that, that can help the talent community, but really help deliver a, a show that the platforms want to buy. And I think in the future, I think the business is, is still going to be a great business. I think five years from now, we won't remember the aftermath of the strike. I think we'll be over the, hopefully, the tension between the, the buyers and the, and the talent side. But more importantly, I think we'll be through all of the content that people think that they, they want or tried to sell before. Maybe we can do that again. We can re- uh, you know, we can do, whether it's uh, reboots of shows, whether it's spinoffs of shows, a lot of that is something that, that the marketplace wants now too. So even more of a reason to try and sell a show, get a show on the air, because that's what the, uh, the IP that the studios have, that's what they're trying to build. They want to monetize that IP. And so that's where the talent has to sort of gravitate to, to be, I think, successful in working in the business moving forward. The, the most important thing is that the Content is still uh, king, as the saying goes, and I think if you can still tell great stories, um, you still you know know how to uh, develop a TV show. There's a market, there's a place for it. It just might not be where we thought it was, or where anyone thought it was a year or two ago, or certainly five years ago. There's always a place. There's there's often new networks popping up, um, new buyers popping up. So hopefully that all continues. But I think at the end of the day, when you have a good idea. When you have something uh, that you can develop into a TV show, you have good partners, there's a home for it.
Lionforge Entertainment is a US black-owned studio focused on telling diverse stories, with credits including Oscar-winning short film Hair Love and upcoming Cartoon Network Max series Iyanu, Child of Wonder. Having started out in animation, the company has expanded into live action and last year hired one-time Imagine Kids and Family chief Stephanie Sperber as President and Chief Content Officer, moving into distribution also. Sperber was at Kids Screen in San Diego this week and spoke there with Carolina Kaminska about its latest slate of shows, including one based on the popular Rebel Girls book series, plus priorities for 2024 and how the firm's navigating a tumultuous US marketplace. We're here in beautiful San Diego. What are you here to do at Kids Screen this week? We are here as Lion Forge to do a bunch of things. We are um, in the middle of selling our show Ianu to all the international buyers. Very exciting. Um, and we are also here to take pitches. There are a lot of great creators and creatives with awesome brands that we are um, lucky enough to be on their radar. So we're taking a ton of pitches here. Um, and in general, um, sort of continuing to introduce Lion Forge Entertainment to the rest of the kids industry. Uh, us as individuals, myself and the executives that work there, are you know quite old. We have lots and lots of experience, but the company Lion Forge is, is relatively new. So we're we continue to sort of get the brand out, establish ourselves as a distribution um, company, as a producer. Um, make sure everyone understands we're doing live action and animation and um, of course selling selling our shows the distribution side of the business is newer right it is actually we established um, Lionforge distribution about six months ago and um, because our, our sort of whole thesis and business model is that we can bring finance to projects and we believe at this time in the industry of such change and such you know um, Sort of breaking up and reforming again in a new in a new structure that there is opportunity for um, to, to sort of own content in a way that wasn't maybe necessarily present in the past configuration of the industry. So we're bringing finance to it. Therefore, we needed a distribution entity that could maintain those sales and rights and coordinate most importantly with our consumer products group as well. So we could really be strategic about distribution. At the right, with the right partner, the right channel that's going to feed the eyeballs to feed the consumer products business. And is the distribution business, is, it, is that all for in-house projects or do you have third-party projects We too? are actually here to meet with third-party um, partners, so we are open to that as well, depending on the project. Yeah, so that's been part of it as well with Jonathan Abraham, who runs that division with Kirsten Newlands, um, meeting with a ton of people, third parties, to see if we can help them out. So Ianu, as you said, massive project view, and, and, and you're you're bringing that to kids' screen this mm -hmm. week. What are the other the other big shows for you? It's very exciting. Um, we have a um, live action uh, series with Rebel Girls, which is a massive massive publishing and audio brand globally. It's um, an incredible uh, sort of story, but we're taking a narrative live action show to the market with Rebel Girls. With You might know Anna McCleary, she's a British writer, she did Free Rain and A Kind of Spark, um, and so we're, we're out talking to folks about Rebel Girls, very exciting. We also have another show called Bugtron that we are kind of teasing, we're not quite yet ready to sell it, but we're teasing that. Um, and of course, we have Chicka Chicka Boom Boom, which is one of the biggest kids' books 
uh, and we are developing that as a preschool property, getting a lot of attention. Um, Penguin, you, yes. you um, forged a, yes, a, we did. A, a partnership with Penguin, so tell me about that. First of all, the Penguin people from top to bottom are incredibly nice, smart, strategic. They're wonderful to work with. Um, but we are we have four books that we're focusing on, and it is um, at this market we're really sort of both looking for creatives to help us develop some, and then we're teasing the overall project. So we have you know a big kids project, we have a live action project, we have a couple uh, younger kids projects. So. We're not specifically out to sell. We're more out to find the right creatives to help us develop. But Penguin is, their library is incredible. Um, and as entertainment executives within a publishing company, I find them to be very savvy in terms of what we work. Because sometimes publishers, you know, God bless them, they, they love every book that they put out, that they publish, but not every book can be translated into a series or a movie. The Penguin folks sort of know I think, can, can tell what's going to work and what isn't going to work. So we love that about them. Okay, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, would you say that known IP is a priority for you or are originals just as important? We, we're balancing it about 50-50, I'd say. I mean, for us personally, because we work very, very purposely to bring creators of color or diverse creators, not just of color, but... LGBTQIA, uh, economic diversity, neurodiversity. We're sort of really looking to bring creators who haven't had the chance necessarily to work on those big um, legacy brands or known IP who have really interesting stories. So if I were to say I'm only going to work on these big known IP brands, it wouldn't help us fulfill the mission of our company, which is the, the motto that we're using is diverse stories authentically told. So in order to balance that mission and what buyers are looking for, which is, of course, known IP, we're really looking 50-50. I'm very, very excited to take original ideas that I think can, that are commercial and, and take them out right alongside, you know, the known IP that we have. Um, and a few months ago, you agreed a first look deal with Nickelodeon Animation. So tell me about that and why Nickelodeon Animation is a good fit for Lionforge. Sure. Um, I've worked with Nickelodeon Animation for um, a number of years when I was at Imagine, sort of doing Tiny Chef and Bossy Bear and some really fun projects. And, I mean, Nickelodeon is, their brand is spectacular. They're, they are risk takers. I find that the executives, Ramsey, Eric, have such interesting tastes. They're not just going for the same old, same old, like softball down the middle which I like. They they really also were attracted to the mission of the company, being a black-owned company and focusing on diverse stories that really appealed to them. So it was sort of felt like coming home in a way. You know, we, we enjoy working together. We and I their, their brand at Nickelodeon, whether it's a linear channel or it's on Paramount Plus as a tile or wherever it may end up, given the state of the industry, is such a respected and revered brand in kids that I think Lion Forge can only benefit from the relationship. So, yeah. What else is in store for 2024? What else can we expect to see from you guys this year? Well, we sold two shows in the first two weeks of January, so that's exciting, which one of them was uh, our first live action show. So we are focusing in 2024 on always, of course, taking out more animation. We have, I think we're pitching 12 
different projects in the first quarter of this year. We are we took last year, which was bloody awful. I mean, it was horrible between the strikes and all the drama. And we took that time to really build out our creative slate. And so we are ready to go. And so 2024 is about going to the marketplace, but there's a special emphasis on live action. So we have a number of projects, both features and, and um, series, that we're really feeling excited about. So that's what you should look for. I think we're going to be selling more live action than yeah, what we sold was a multicam, which is interesting to me that multicams are sort of coming back into vogue. Um, so we're focusing on that as well. And on, on the subject of the strikes, has that slowed things down a lot for you? It it did. I mean, it was really rough. Um, we work, you know, we're based in LA. All the right the writers that we know are LA. Mo- so many of them are WGA. It, it was it was really stifling and pretty bad but now that's over now everyone's like oh let's get working again so it's been actually great this you know as soon as the strike was over and into first quarter um it's been like a rich the riches of writers sort of falling falling from the sky everyone wants to get working so yeah the the industry is still in in a tough place with the global economic crisis yeah so what kind of impact is that having on, on the company and, and the industry on the whole? Yeah, I think um, I think as an industry, money to invest has gotten tighter, harder to raise, I'd say, a little bit tighter, harder to raise. We are in a position where we don't feel that pressure. We sort of know what we can invest and in. we've been really wise about what we're going to finance and what we're going to sell as an original. So that hasn't impacted us so much. Um, but I do feel less sort of about the global economy necessarily and more about the consolidation and reconfiguration of the entire entertainment, you know, sort of platforms. It's just nobody knows what's going to come next. You know, everyone's sort of saying it'll, it went from the old school three networks, then it went to cable, then it was streaming crazy, and it's probably going to coalesce again into three networks that are, three or four, that are streamer, streamer named, but it's essentially going to be the same thing where you have the Nick tile, you know, the Nat Geo tile, the Hulu tile, the Fox tile, all, you know, within the the structure of the, quote, network. So I kind of think what's old will be new again very soon, and it will kind of calm down a little bit um, in the next couple years. But we're, we are ready, our whole, you know, sort of thesis is we can finance people who are buyers who are reluctant to spend their original money fine. Let us come in and and take it as a license. We'll take the risk and we'll finance it and then we'll own the IP at the end of the day. So that's what we're betting on. What are the biggest challenges for you at the moment and the opportunities as well? Sure. I think the biggest challenge is the the buyers, um, first of all, the, the people, the actual human beings at the platforms are changed so with such frequency that it is hard for any of us producers and sellers to to know what a platform is looking for in the kids and family space because the people change quite often and they're with that with that change their mandates change so are they looking for older younger comedy social you know SEL are they looking for curriculum is it boys is it girls so that's hard because you don't know what they're looking for necessarily all the time Um, And then I think the buyers also are not quite sure about how to balance buying something as an original outright and owning it versus giving it as a license. So 
the model for the deals hasn't quite become clear to us. So do you want to spend your money and own it, or do you want us to spend our money and own it and mitigate your risk? And that hasn't quite solidified. What, what do you see as being the biggest um, opportunities currently? Sort of the flip side is that's the opportunity. What, what I think is valuable in the kids' space is to be able to, in, in some or even half the cases, own your own IP. So if you can bring financing to it, and own that as an asset. And literally we think about it as we're, we have a bunch of shelves in our library and we're, we're filling those shelves with copyrights. If we can do that 30% of the time, the value of Lion Forge will just dramatically increase. So the, the opportunity is the challenge and the challenge is the opportunity. Let's figure out that licensing model and how it plays within the buyer's ecosystem of originals versus license in the kids space. What is Lion Forge's um, stance on AI, artificial intelligence? What are your thoughts on that? Is is it something that you're experimenting with? We are not yet, but it's it is here, and we will. Um, I mean, the impact to production is. I've been reading so many articles. There was one on what jobs in production are going to be replaced or displaced, and we haven't started yet. I mean, it's something that we're going to have to talk about and be really strategic about. Um, but also, I think the potential um, animation strike that's coming, the, the contract will help create some guidelines around you know, what can and can't be done in, in AI. It's, it's coming for all of us. So, it, you know, adapt or die. Um, it's those, I've, I've talked to people that have said, we're never using AI. I'm like, that's not a thing. You can't just say that because you're going to at some point. Everybody is. In all walks of life, we're going to be doing AI, including animation. So, yeah. it's coming. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the, the yeah. motto. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, um, diversity and inclusion is, is what Lionforge is all about. Yep. What are your thoughts on how the industry is, is dealing with that? Um, the buyers are so excited by it, by the idea that we're, we're telling stories that are diverse, but they're not trauma stories. Like, we're telling fun, commercial, global stories, but we're bringing people into it that haven't necessarily been given the opportunity to tell those stories in the same way. So the buyers are really responding to the talent that we're bringing to the table. I mean, it's kind of a superpower, in a way, that we are bringing these incredible writers, directors, art directors, you know, design. We, this is so amazing, this story, if I might. We were looking for um, a character designer to do some work uh, on some service work that we have for an amazing company. The show was featuring black female uh, characters. We were looking around on Instagram, finding designers, and we found this guy. He was amazing. We hired him to do just, you know, this one job. And we he was so good that we got him in touch with the Ianu recruiting team. They hired him to be a full-time, you know, uh, character designer. He had worked for 17 years at Home Depot and had always dreamed of getting out of Home Depot and being an artist in the animation industry. And we found, we found him because we were looking for black character designers specifically who could do this job. And we, we did the work to find this guy and now he's literally living his dream life out of 17 years at Home Depot and working in the entertainment industry. So 
people respond to that. The buyers respond to that. And it's real. Yeah, that, I mean, that is a really inspirational story, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. And, and to think that there will be, inevitably, yes. more people like him yeah. who are still waiting to be discovered. Right. So, you know, how, how do you feel... What, what what do you feel? Are their chances now improved or does more still need to be done? Well, more, to try more and... still needs to be done. I mean, the idea that Lion Forge is really the only black-owned animation studio of scale. I'm sure there are independents, but it's but sort of funded at scale, you know, working like we are, is bonkers. You know, it's and so there should be more you know, sort of diverse-owned and focused studios when that happens. Hopefully we will be successful, let's hope, not would, and that will be inspiring to, you know, uh, other owners, creators to start their own their own studios so do the same. But, yeah, there's tons more room to go. I mean, the, the default, when you're thinking about, oh, who should I get to help me write that show or who should I get to design that show, the default is to those people who've been in the industry for the last few decades who are great and talented, but they, they tend not to be an incredibly diverse crowd. So there's a lot of work that you have to do, more than you normally would to really find those folks that are incredible. And so, you know, that's we're, we're committed to doing that work and, and it's paying off for everybody. Black Box Multimedia, the production company set up by former Lionsgate UK Chief Operating Officer Guy Avshalom, appointed ex-Fox Networks Group Executive Giuliano Papadia Chief Executive five years ago. With operations in London, Rome and Madrid, the privately financed enterprise has forged relationships with a number of fellow independent players, including Germany's Night Train Media and the UK's Clapperboard Studios, on series such as The Ex-Wife, The Serial Killer's Wife and The Castaways, all novel adaptations for Paramount+. Papadia spoke to me about the business, its latest shows and the territories in which it's keen to grow, as well as how he sees the scripted market changing as streamers, cut budgets and consolidation across the industry continues. Yeah, I'm Giuliano Papadia. I worked uh, in this industry since uh, I started working. Uh, it's more time that I would like to remember. <laughs> um, it's uh, I started with the Fox Network Group, my career, and I finished my career in Fox Network Group just before uh, the merger with uh, with Disney when uh, I started working for Black Box. I always focus uh, my career on creating content, starting with factual but ending up with uh, scripted content that are my passion uh, and when we started uh, Black Box we had in mind me and Guy Absalom that is the president of the company former CEO of Lionsgate uh, the fact that the world was changing and uh, there were less less local player more international player that were focusing on the market in a different way we're looking for different content and the audience was changing was becoming more transnational in terms of taste of the content that they like so we anticipated that thinking that uh, it was a, a good idea to start a company with uh, this new audience in mind so our 
first slate of development just pre-COVID was focusing on finding stories that will resonate with the world as it was. Then COVID hit and the world changed again <laughs> and we had to refocus the strategy. But what didn't change is the fact that uh, now more than before, uh, you have shows that coming from Korea and have a, a footprint that is a worldwide footprint or a Spanish law, uh, show like Casa de Papel, Money Heist, that became a sensation all over the places, all over the world, with people going in the street uh, with, with, uh, with the symbols of the, of the series. So we were sure that we were on something uh, also on the business side, on the business model, because what we were focusing on was uh, to find an anchor broadcaster, but to keep as much as possible the international IP for us to exploit. And that's when the first uh, the first show on Paramount Plus hit with this model. So we developed the ex-wife in 2022 uh, for Paramount Plus in combination with two partners. One was Clapperboard Studios, that is our loved partner in UK. And the other one was a German distribution company where Paramount entered for UK and we had the distribution coming on board for the rest of the, uh, of the rest of the world. The show was a big hit for the channel and so our relation with Paramount grew this year with two further series that were released uh, the end of uh, 2023 Syracuse Wife and Castaways with the same model Syracuse Wife has been done uh, with Newen on board as a rest of the world distributor and BBC Studios was on board for uh, Castaways both stories are uh, at the core uh, stories that we know can resonate wherever they place it's uh, uh, something that uh, can happen to every one of us. So it's uh, uh, is the thing that people want to watch either for escapism, like Castaways, where you see beautiful uh, surroundings, uh, landscapes, uh, but uh, a very thrilling story, or something more domestic and intimate, like the Cedar Killer's Wife, where he some answers some very uh, common nightmare to wake up one day not recognizing anymore the person that you lived with for the past 10 years. So these three series for Paramount Plus, they're all novel adaptations as well, literary. Yes, they're all novel adaptations. Is, is that a very much a sort of a, a core part of the strategy for you? It, it, it became part of the strategy because it's uh, in, a, in a very overcrowded uh, environment like the scripted environment today, where you have a lot of stories uh, uh, running around, uh, coming with an AP, a piece of AP, will help in the sale process, in the sale process. Sometimes we follow the AP, like in Castaway, more. Some other times we depart from the AP, we just keep the concept, like with the, the serial killer's wife. Uh, sometimes it's a mix of the two. But starting from a place, it's easier for starting conversation with buyers. This is what we have seen. I don't know if it's something that will, is gonna is gonna continue, but uh, at the moment, I think it's also more reassuring for a commissioner to have uh, an audience that already liked the concept. So it's a uh, uh, it's a proved concept that can work. You talked about some of the partnerships that you have there. You mentioned yes. Clapboard in particular, Night Train Media. How did those relationships come about? And 
and how are they developing independent players in amongst you know a very consolidated marketplace? Uh, I think that n- now more than ever, being not alone in the process, it's a it's a big plus. It's a big plus financially, of course, because it can share the burden. It's a big plus in terms of production because you know that. Uh, you plan and God laugh, right? So it's uh, it's even more true for uh, for production. So you can plan to have two production one after the other. Then things happen. Uh, actors are not available or are on strike, and then you are forced to have two production one at the same time of the other. So if you are two, like we were with Clapper, but for both Castaway and the Cedar Kid's wife, you can split forces and still being able to deliver two show in the same month. If we were alone, probably we would be possible to do it also because at the same time we're producing two movies so it's uh I think that if you find the right partner, it makes uh, all the process more flexible and you can adapt to the changes. And uh, today market is full of changes and you have people moving from one company to another company, buying other companies uh, or being both. So it's uh, it's not an easy period to be an independent producer, I would say. You just have to read the newspaper and hope and pray that your commissioner stays for long enough to see your producer. show. And you mentioned also that that it was key for you as a company to be able to retain those rights as, yes. as far as, as possible. Obviously, that's been something which, you know, the streamers, the, the big global streamers have been less keen on, you know, allowing others to... to yeah, when we started, I would say when we started, we, we received a lot of no's, a lot of uh, closed doors uh, and saying, no, we prefer to pay a little bit more, but it's our show. Uh, the more the budget is going up, the more I think that everyone is uh, open to listen uh, a different business proposition. Sometimes you still hit the wall, and with the big streamers, it's uh, it's more complicated to find uh, a way to carve out some territories. But it's it's really more common now that they sit and say, okay, let's see how we can make it and uh, make the the show even looking better and compete with other people that that maybe have a higher budget uh, on the market. And the fact that, you know, you've worked with a number of different distributors, three different distributors on these three Paramount Plus series, BBC Studios on the Castaways, uh, the serial killer's wife with new and distribution and uh, the ex-wife, all three media was representing that at, at MIPCOM last year. So, your approach, it's a kind of a, a pick and mix approach. You don't have any one kind of uh, firm distribution partner, I suppose, or a preferred partner that you... I think uh, what we always... ...community with. Yes, no, no, we don't. Uh, what we try to to find is always a partner that, that have the same passion for the project that we have. It's a lot easier to have conversation with someone who loves, the passion, uh, loves passionately the project rather than just someone that is uh, taking the project because it's one of the many that they are selling. So... Uh, we really care about what we do and we like to find partners that care what we do as well at the same level. So, yeah, we have we don't have a, a one stop when we find a, a partner, but we just open conversation and see who resonates with the, with the material the most. And um, what about Night Train Media as well? I mean, uh, another... Night Train is, uh, was our first partner, was our first partner. Uh, we developed the ex-wife together, and uh, we developed a movie that we released, uh, that we 
deliver the end of uh, 2023 to them. It's a romantic comedy. Uh, they are German, so they are not a UK. Uh, they are not based in UK. So we 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 started together because we complement each other. So they have very strong. Uh, footprint in Europe, but we were here in UK, so we were offering each other uh, uh, one hand to move together on the on the ladder. And I think the triangulation with Clapper was was perfect for the ex-wife. And uh, we had different partners in terms of produ- production company, but the one that is closest to our ethos and our vision uh, for sure is uh, is, is Clapper. But that's the reason why we are continuing doing business with them. Do you see those relationships becoming closer as the market becomes more and more consolidated? I suppose you know, th- and 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 as you say, budgets going up and, and harder for independent players to remain independent yeah i mean so we, we will luckily we have a we have a shareholder that it's a, a fund so we we don't need we don't need to have partnership it's more a strategical decision for us to navigate troubled waters with someone else rather than alone uh because sometimes we can provide solution they can provide solution that we wouldn't be able to access uh alone it's it's more i think for independent the real the real challenge is that uh, when you have a, a small boat even uh, small waves on, on the sea can be dangerous if you are bigger you can navigate the small waves and the market is so turbulent and uh, you see we, we had six months of strikes that almost halted everything and we were lucky to have everything almost finished when the strike started but I mean if we were in the middle of it and we were alone it would have been a lot more dangerous for the sake of the company for the safe safety of the company than if we were in two i mean we're early in 2024 2023 was a good year for you but as you say it was also uh, a year characterized by turbulence 2024 is not looking like it's going to be any less (laughs) we've already seen some some uh, major job cuts at amazon being announced and paramount talk of Paramount and uh, Warner Brothers Discovery even getting together, you know, in a, in a new combined company. So um, I think choppy water I think the, ahead for yeah. 2024 as well, no? I think the consolidation process in the market is not finished yet. Uh, it will finish at one point. And uh, as as we have seen in the past, we'll, the pendulum will go on the other way. It will scatter again in a uh, hundred of companies. Uh, yeah, we will see. We will see some turbulence in 2024 as well. Uh, luckily, I mean, we worked well in the previous years, so it's uh, we we would be able probably to navigate also the 2024 turbulence in a way that is safe for the for the company. The, the the luck that we have is that we never focus on one territory only. So it, it was never UK only uh, company. So we have relation in Spain, Italy, in the Nordics. So we, we we can leverage the risk because we can diversify the set of commissioner. And uh, I mean, yes, it can happen that all of them will merge in one at one point, but hopefully not in 2024. What else are you expecting? in the next uh, 12 months you know what are you excited about in the business what are some of the things that you've got in development that you, maybe you can give us a uh, a little hint of and you know what what are the kind of the challenges that you're facing for for what we are going to do 
our idea is that we will probably do uh, two or three series and a couple of movies next year. Uh, we had a very, very good success with the horror that we released with Warner in Italy, and uh, he broke almost all records uh, in uh, in the theater uh, during November and December. So we will probably have another horror uh, end of next year uh, as a feature. Uh, we are specializing in this uh domestic thriller so we'll probably have another another domestic thriller coming uh, coming on i mean it's uh, maybe an original not based on book this time uh but who knows i mean we can we cannot foresee the future we will also work on uh development for 2025 so it's uh it's mainly we will reap all the all the investment that we made in 2023 to make a 2024 a stable year as much as uh, the market will let us stay be, being stable uh, and planning for 2025 for further growth for the company. And script, it is that part of the business, I suppose, which has been most challenged by all the turbulence that we've seen. So it's also the most lucrative one. So uh, it's uh, there is a reason why it's most challenged. So I, I guess my question is, um, you know, is that the genre that you're committed to or are you beginning to think about unscripted as the business evolves? Let's say that the unscripted evolution uh, makes close and close to to the scripted model. So we are storyteller. And uh, usually if you are a storyteller, you tend to be a fictional storyteller. Sometimes you see unscripted uh, series of documentaries that are more fictional than actually the fiction that you make. So I think that the three genre, the feature, the, fi- the fiction, the series, uh, and the unscripted, mainly the, the one that is, I'm thinking of the real crime, uh, all the real crime stuff that is coming on, uh, really overlapping with uh, a low-budget fiction, and the high-end fi- series, uh, it's overlapping with the, uh, with Fisher, it's very difficult now nowadays to to understand to have a clear separation of genre. I think that in the next couple of years you will see a lot of uh, cross fertilization, so people working on scripted that will start doing uh, factual and vice versa, as we have seen be- between the Fisher films and the scripts happening uh, till now. I mean, you have a lot of uh, a lot more now than you had it before. People that worked uh, uh, in Fisher that are moving on script and vice versa. The fact that the streamers are not making any difference now when they commission between scripted or uh, feature, it's really bland the world. And what about your balance of series and features? Because, you know, movies, although movie theatres are still struggling, you know, movies are kind of having something of a renaissance on streaming services themselves. So what about your, your sort of balance? So what we have seen, and I mean, when we started, we didn't plan to enter into the feature business at all. I mean, we were just TV production company. We we have been asked a lot from the streamers to cut down hours because I think this will be another thing that we will see in the future. Uh, it's unsustainable for the streamers to produce series of 12, 12 episodes because they binged in four, five days, and then you will have to release something new because otherwise you will not retain your your audience. So having something to promote will always be paramount for them because they will have to invest in order to attract new customer and financing a movie, a two hour movie, it's a lot cheaper than financing 12 hour series. So they they will increase, I think, the commissioning of a short form, two hours. It's 
when I was young, a lot of time ago, uh, it was the TV movie. I think in a way we will see sort of a renaissance of the the TV movie kind of uh, format. So something that they can announce that you can attract a bigger cast because it takes a lot less time to have uh, big names. So you, you have to commit less time to produce something like two hours or three hours uh, show. And still it's a promotable. So you have faces to put on posters and you have uh, an attraction for for new for new customers it's uh yes the theater the theaters will always uh, be something i think that uh, the theater business will have to evolve as well uh we have seen already windows of the theater becoming shorter and shorter and shorter uh you have six weeks and then you have it on disney plus or you have it on amazon or you have it on apple then you can you can pay while it's already in cinema so it's uh it's still the troubled water are still there for the business model that will survive but people will always want to go somewhere else to watch it on a big screen this is something for sure we will have to consider that so in terms of balance sorry just to answer your question uh, the main focus will always be the serialized element, uh, but I think more and more we are developing uh, uh, projects that are feature or can be feature. Finally, um, you you started off by talking about some of the the partnerships that you've you've had historically and still continue to maintain. But what about the sorts of partnerships that you're looking to develop moving forward? You know, and and how you like to to work with other companies? Yes. So there there are two two main strategy avenue that we are going to explore uh one is on the physical production side so uh, we are on most of our projects. We are working uh, with the production company in Italy in order to uh, exploit the tax incentives there. And uh, again, because the budget is going are going up, and bringing money on the table is always a plus. Uh, so we would like to explore other territories in order to have uh, again a diversified risk when you start the production. On the editorial side, we will probably look to find as reliable partner as we found here in UK in other territories most notably in the nordics that we we think it's the is the closest to the sensibility of the western europe uh, that you can find outside uk and where talents are developing very quickly and very fast and spain because spain is the door for the latin america and latin america it's a huge market black box multimedia's giuliano papadia that's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.